Hi, and welcome to Office Hours, a podcast of Westminster Seminary, California, that takes you inside the seminary and face-to-face with our faculty. I'm Scott Clark. Today, I'm talking with Steve Baugh, professor of New Testament at Westminster Seminary, California. He is author of a widely used introductory Greek primer and reader in 1 John. And among other things, he's contributor to the Zondervan Illustrated Bible Backgrounds Commentary on the Pastoral Epistles and Philemon. These titles are available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Steve, and welcome to Office Hours. So um, let's start with your, your background. Um, were you raised Reformed? How, how did you become a Reformed Christian? Well, I was converted when I was 23 while serving in the military and wound up in Pentecostal circles for about five years. And through the Lord's good grace, wound up at an Orthodox Presbyterian church while in college. And about a year before, I came down to the seminary to uh, attend. And it was a slow process, but seminary in particular helped me... uh, cement uh, reformed ideas and really was terrifically edifying and helpful for me so I think a combination of being in the OPC and uh, my seminary experience uh, really made me reformed person that I am today. So uh, Steve obviously you you were not raised uh, reformed and you you didn't become reformed overnight what what were some of the things that that uh, as you you came to faith, and you began reading your Bible, and uh, you had conversations with people. What were the things um, that led you away from where you started in the faith and, and, to, and to become Reformed, and where, where did all this happen? Well, that's really interesting. It's hard to, hard to think of one episode or issue, but one big issue was while in college— and attending the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, um, there was a grad student, this was in Eugene, in um, Oregon, I went to the University of Oregon, there was a grad student there who was a part of the church, and he and I, he and I became friends, in fact, our families, and, um, but he was really interested in justification by faith, and he would talk about that a lot. And he really got me into reading more on it and understanding it more. And I think that was really helpful for me because the objective nature of Christ's work and how he has bought us and that we are free from guilt and righteous before God because of Christ, I think is the heart of Reformed faith. And I think it is something that I was at you know, really involved with in that early time and helped me uh, in my pilgrimage a lot. You know, becoming Reformed did make a, a real difference in your life. Can you point to one or two things concretely where where you can say, this is a real difference? Oh, yes. I think the—it was interesting you said my experience before becoming Reformed. I think that was the heart of it is. I was in circles, a variety of circles, Um and everything was about experience. You know, are you experiencing closeness with God today? You know, how are you and God doing today? And primarily what that means, are you doing your part? And I never felt like I was doing my part enough. 
if you spend an hour in prayer, well, you really should spend two hours in prayer. Um, and have you had your quiet time today? Well, yes, I have my quiet time, but it wasn't very productive. Well, everything sort of builds to where you never feel like you're close with God. And with justification and the the focus on Christ, all of that becomes secondary. Now I want to have my time of prayer. Now I want to uh, have time reading the scripture and communing with God because I'm free to. What were you? What was your uh, major field of study when you were in in university? When you were an undergrad? Uh, my first degree is in broadcasting. <laughs> you wouldn't know it. I was in the production side. And you used some of that training? Uh, well, I would not much, except that I don't mind being in f- behind a microphone. <laughs> no, I, um, it was a very good degree because uh, it allowed me to take a, a variety of courses. And, and uh, for the language course, I wanted to read the New Testament, so I took uh, classical Greek. Um, and it was simply because I wanted to read the New Testament. It wasn't uh, because I ever planned to teach it. And then I uh, immediately uh, started uh, becoming convinced that I should take uh, study of the Scripture very seriously. I continued in that degree, but then I had the opportunity when I finished to take another degree, which I did in classics. You studied with some, some interesting people at the University of Oregon. Oh, yeah. I studied with uh, E.P. Sanders' brother. Jack Sanders. So the new perspective uh, for me was uh, introduced in 1978 from E.P. Sanders' brother, and we and Christopher Stendhal came out from Harvard and gave lectures to us. And so I I had all that stuff in the late 70s. So you you've been exposed to this, what for a lot of people was a brand new idea and problem and question. Uh, you, you were exposed to that really from the beginning of your, your education. Well, E.P. Sanders' book was published in 1977, and I was reading it in 78 with his brother, and, you know, who was teaching it as, uh, you know, the truth that we should accept. But while I was in seminary, which uh, I started in 1982, those were still questions I was, you know, wondering about and thinking about and and pursuing. So, no, new perspective is not new to me at all. So, how did you get from the University of Oregon studying classics, reading, uh, you know, studying classical Greek and and some Latin? Uh, how, how did you get from there to studying theology and uh, at Westminster Seminary, California? Well, I knew I wanted to teach uh, right away at a college or seminary, and. So I had three seminaries I was looking at, Dallas Theological Seminary, Fuller Seminary, and here, Westminster, California. And I came here. I was becoming more interested in the Reformed faith, but also it was a smaller school. And I, want, I felt like uh, theological training should be more personal and that I would get better personal attention at this seminary. And I did, and I'm you know, forever grateful that I did come here. Not that the other places are necessarily bad, but they just, uh, for me, this has been an ideal place. What kind of difference do you think it made to you to have gone to seminary? What, what, what changes happened to you while you were in seminary? Uh, really just cementing the gospel in my, in my mind and heart. 
which is not a small thing. No, it's not a small thing, and it should take place in church, and it, it does in good churches, but I was floating around all sorts of places. I never really had joined a church, and except for that OPC, but I was in college. I didn't um, participate as much as I could have and was still learning about all that. So uh, although they they did really help me a lot. Built foundations for you. Oh, yes, definitely. Well, I, I saw people who were confident in the faith. And this was some, and you know, they didn't have all the questions that I had, and all the, all the anxieties about uh, being right with God. And, you know, the gospel gives you that. It gives you confidence. It gives you uh, gratitude to, to God, joy in the Lord. These are things I was reading about in the New Testament, but I didn't have before. Uh, and since, you know, embracing the Reformed faith, the gospel, articulated in it that I just uh, have joy and peace now that uh, has not ever gone away. You you mentioned one of the questions that you were dealing with still when you came to seminary uh, was the new perspective. Were there other issues that, that were floating around in your mind that that uh, seminary, Westminster Seminary, California, helped yeah. resolve? Yes, yes. It was Scripture, actually, the doctrine of Scripture. I had come to seminary thinking that there were errors in the Bible. I was taught that from the religion department at uh, the, the university. I took some classes there. Um, and I really had serious questions about uh, whether the scriptures were inerrant or not, and that was uh, really resolved for me uh, here at the seminary. And I was very grateful, and it was right away. We took a class called Christian Mind, um, where that was... Uh, a big issue that we studied, and after reading, particularly B.B. Warfield's book, The Inspiration and Authority of Scripture. Is, yeah. that, the, is that the title? Yeah. So you're one of the few that's actually read Warfield. Oh, it's a wonderful <laughs> book. Yeah, you should it re- It's never been answered. It's never been surpassed. It is a terrific book, uh, and it helped me a lot in that. It's interesting because a lot of uh, biblical studies folks are uh, today, it's sort of popular to be hostile to Warfield. Uh, I remember reading a, some an article in The Churchman uh, from some years back by, um, I think it was James Dunn, and in which, uh, as part of the article, you know, he took a shot at Warfield. And, uh, and I, I remember reading, I think, a response, uh, someone complaining about that, and then in response, Dunn saying, well, actually, I haven't read much Warfield. And, and and so it's interesting for me to hear you as a you know a vocational biblical scholar New Testament scholar uh, say uh, to sort of testify how valuable you found Warfield's work in the scriptures Warfield is known as a systematic uh, writer and he he is I mean that was his position later in life but he started as a New Testament scholar he wrote a very important uh, book on text criticism in the New Testament and uh, then he moved into systematic theology, but his biblical work is uh, uh, very sensitive, very uh, carefully done, um, and competent. This sort of raises the question, too, and this is something you and I have talked about, uh, and that's the relation between systematic theology and biblical theology, systematics and, and, and exegesis and hermeneutics. Uh, in fact, I think I remember you telling me that hermeneutics, in, in a sense, is theology, that you, you really can't have a, a hermeneutic that's a theological. So talk about that for a minute. 
Well, I teach a class here at the seminary, first-year class, with uh, my colleague Joel Kim. And uh, I really enjoy that class, but the, the section that I teach in particular that sometimes surprises students is when I come across very strongly with my conviction that to do good exegesis, you are doing theology already. You know, you, you already have a theology that leads you to do exegesis. You have a theology of Scripture. Uh, and systematic theology is not only the outcome of your exegesis, it also is part of the production of exegesis. Your, your systematics shapes how you interpret things. This is uh, the insight of Cornelius Van Til as I understand it, applied to that process. And I think he's absolutely right. I think that uh, systematics and exegesis go hand in hand. Now, of course, it is also, systematics is the process, excuse me, the product of exegesis. So we have, you know, we have to have departments that talk with one another and learn from one another, uh, which I think we do here uh, at Westminster in California. But it's it's not a one-sided thing where the exegetes have this pure neutral method that is all theological. That's just uh, that's a myth. So when people are picking up commentaries and and uh, or reading notes in the you know footnotes in their in their Bible in their study Bible, uh, these notes are written by frequently by biblical scholars, but biblical scholars who are uh, in various schools are influenced by various schools of thought. And um, and and so it's not utterly innocent, right? They they're in a time, in a place. They have a theology, whatever they may, you know, whatever stance they may take, you know, they may say, right? I'm just following the Bible, but in fact, everyone reads the Bible in a particular way, uh, with a particular group of Bible readers that that in some in some way or other they selected. Well, you mentioned uh, uh, something about uh, working together and the sort of collegial relation we have here. Tell me a little bit about um, your experience as a teacher here. You were here as a student. We were here together, and um, and I remember um, I remember uh, walking around with my Greek Testament. I was working through Ephesians one or Ephesians two. I had a question, and as I always have done, I, I stopped you and I said, "Steve, help help me with this." And you gave me an instant exegesis that I, 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 on which I still rely. So I have to be careful of that instant exegesis stuff. Add water and stir. Um, but it, it worked. Um, so you, you had a good experience here, and then you, you came back to teach. When did you start teaching here? Well, I came in 1982 as a student. I had classical Greek, and they had an opening my second year, so 83, for someone to teach uh, two of the beginning Greek classes in succession, so fall and, and uh, winter. And so they asked me to teach that in 83, which I, I did, uh, where, where angels fear to tread. Uh, there I go rushing off. I've always said half chalkboard will teach, uh, although they took away my chalkboard and I have whiteboard now. Yeah, <laughs> So I started teaching Greek then and continued teaching uh, Greek part-time for many years until around 1990 when I was teaching full-time here. I finished my, my Ph.D. nearby at Irvine in 
UC Irvine in 1990. So you've actually been teaching Greek here for about as long as, as anyone else. You're, it makes you one of the more senior, n- not to put too fine a point on it, but... Well, I've been teaching beginning Greek for a long time. Yeah. One of the things that people don't know about our Greek teaching here, and I don't teach it alone. My uh, colleague, uh, Joel Kim, Professor Joel Kim, teaches with me. What happens is um, there are two distinctives of our program in Greek besides having an experienced professor, and that is that our Greek instruction is taught by professors. So Joel Kim and I teach Greek, and we don't we don't push that off to somebody else unless one of us is gone or something. Um, and that's out of conviction that you should be learning Greek as part of the essential tools of reading your scripture uh, from someone who does this as a profession. And the second thing is I wrote the two beginning Greek books for our curriculum. So it's a, a package. It's a, a whole curriculum designed uh, with these books contributing to the whole uh, instruction. What's the thing that, um, as a teacher now, that you enjoy most about teaching here? What? Well, you know, <laughs> you hate to uh, say just one thing because there are many things. Well, give me a few then. Well, I, I think our students are terrific. I really enjoy our students. I think we attract uh, very interesting, uh, hardworking people who have a lot of integrity, uh, and frankly, it's just a privilege to be around them and to teach them. And I don't say that, you know, it, it sounds like a, a empty compliment, but it certainly isn't because it's, uh, you know, I've been here for a long time, and I think our our student population is actually, uh, I don't know, in the last several years, I've just been impressed more and more by the quality of people we get from around the world. Uh, and so I, I think that's terrific. Um, I love my colleagues. We get along wonderfully. Uh, I love our interaction. I know that I can go into anybody's office and ask questions and get help, and I do that regularly. Um, you know, I learn an awful lot about covenant theology from you, obviously. Uh, but that was a very stimulating time for me when we were working through covenant theology together and certain questions I had. It was really very helpful to me because... Uh, you know, you've been studying that intensively, and that that was a real learning experience where it cemented some ideas that I've been wondering about. And your questions were your questions were provocative for me too. You forced me to look into some things that, in more detail, that I had I hadn't uh, hadn't really thought about much. Um, what do you think is the value? And I know you've been asked this question a lot, but I think it's an important question. So it needs to. I think it'd be helpful to talk about it for a minute. What's the value for a student, you know, uh, of learning the biblical languages? And, and what can you say to someone who's listening and thinking, oh, well, you know, I'd love to do that, but I don't know if I can do it. Well, <laughs> I, have a lot of, I have a lot to say on that, and I've said it a lot to uh, students throughout the, my time here. The first thing is uh, I tell my story that when I was in boot camp uh, many years ago, I took a language aptitude exam and failed it. So, so I've always thought that uh, it was God's good sense of humor that I'm here teaching Greek when I obviously don't have any aptitude for language. Well, at least not according to the United States military. 
Well, they, they, I think they're right. I, I think uh, uh, what happened is I just worked at it. In college, I worked four hours a day or more on Greek because it, it was just really tough, but I wanted it. And I think that's all it takes. It just takes perseverance and hard work for most normal people. Um, but I think you have to know why you're doing it. And at our school, we teach Greek not for speed reading or, you know, this really highly uh, unattainable goals, but I think it's a very realistic goal of learning how to read a passage to prepare a sermon and Bible study. So you're working over seven to ten verses a week, for example, uh, or less, depending on the passage you're working on. And I think that's a very realistic goal in the time we have. Um, No, they use that as well, but it's one tool among many. Um, but no, they're not relying upon those. They have they have to make it their own, uh, and it's up to them. But I think it's a it's a very realistic goal. I think anybody can do it with uh, perseverance and hard work. And our and when our students leave, they you know they can read their Greek Testament and they get better at it too as they go along. We you're you're not setting them up just to be able to use Bible works or accordance or something. And you see some evidence right in our graduates that that they actually do, you know, take their Greek and Hebrew Testaments and they use them and, and work through them. And I periodically get uh, emails from former students asking me Greek questions, and which I happily and as fast as I can uh, uh, answer and help them with. And I think it's terrific because they're, they're continuing to work with it. Yes, they're the ones who are, uh, our, our alum have a good, uh, a very good record of keeping up. Because for us... Uh, Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic are access to the Word of God. These are the love words of our Savior. This is, this is our direct contact with the Word, uh, unmediated by a translator. Um, and that's why we do it. We do it because we want that uh, direct access to the Lord through His Word. Um, and, and further, you know, we're, we're training specialists in the Bible. This is what we do at seminary people who can uh, utilize all the tools to understand their Bible better in the context of the history of theology, the history of the church, uh, systematic understanding, all the other disciplines enter into that process as well. But, you know, th- this is part of what we're doing as specialists. You wouldn't want a, a uh, medical doctor who didn't know chemistry. <laughs> so w- why have a... a biblical scholar slash pastor who doesn't know how to handle uh, his Greek. Yeah, well, yeah, you wouldn't want a physician who didn't know uh, basic physiology. <laughs> and a minister who doesn't know his Greek and Hebrew is seriously handicapped. Well, you don't want to get up in the pulpit and say, thus says the commentator. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, that's good. That's uh, All right, we're, I want to come back and, and in a minute and talk about your uh, uh, some more of your academic work. But as you as you do this work, um, you know, you, you don't do it only as an academic. You do it, certainly you are a scholar, but you also have an ecclesiastical vocation, right? You have a, you have a call from uh, the Escondido Orthodox Presbyterian Church or from the Presbytery, and so you conduct your work uh, here in a school, but you do it with an ecclesiastical vocation. And so you, 
Yeah, it's from my presbytery to be a teacher at the seminary. Okay. And I have a ministerial call. And so you conduct your work uh, here right. in a school, but you do it with an ecclesiastical That's right. Location. And so you... Yeah, I've, I've participated in two uh, church plants in the area, and I've been active in presbytery. I've only been able to be at General Assembly once, but I'm going again as soon as I can. And you've and you've you've taught Sunday school, and you obviously raised children in the church. You and you preach, you pulpit supply, so you're you're active in the life of the church. How how do you think? that the ecclesiastical aspect of your vocation, how does that color your academic work? To tell you the truth, I think of my work as serving the church indirectly, since I'm not in the pulpit every week. But I think of my work as serving the church by preparing ministers. Let's go back to your academic work, and um, and I know you just uh, completed a revision, a complete uh, revision of the Greek primer. Talk about that for a minute. Yeah, that took 14 months, and I had uh, assistance of two of uh, research, research assistants through the seminary, which I was very grateful for, helping with proofreading. But it was 14 months of complete revision of every sentence in the primer, primarily just improving it and making it uh, more useful for its purpose, trying to sharpen it to be um, really present more clearly, even as clearly as I could, the essentials of Greek. Was there a particular uh, pedagogical approach that you you adopted for the sake of the primer? What what's different about this from other introductory Greek texts? Yeah, it. I utilized uh, research in how to read foreign language for reading knowledge. And so I used insights from the literature, uh, educational literature, to try to present Greek for reading knowledge in a way that would be most effective and helpful uh, to, uh, to bring students to those skill levels. So you it gets kind of complicated in how you do it, but the exercises are set up in such a way to develop what's called subskills. But I think the one thing that uh, students like about it is that in the first uh, few lessons, they start reading the New Testament, and you're reading exercises and sentences lifted right out of the New Testament right away, rather than uh, sentences that I've composed that are artificial. So you're reading real Greek as opposed to... I think by lesson four. And and uh, you've also been working on another project? Yes, I've been contacted to write a commentary on Ephesians, which I'm pursuing now. And uh, I'm turning my attention to that basic work now. It's very exciting. And and when um, not to not to put any pressure on you, but when do you uh, when do you expect to finish? Oh, I forget to tell you the truth. Several years, two or three years from now. Okay, so this is a long term project. Yeah, I wrote the uh, study notes for Ephesians in a study Bible, the ESV study Bible, and that was such a wonderful experience. I just uh, as I was doing this, I had to pause and you know thank the Lord for the opportunity to just read that book more carefully in that exercise. And so 
Uh, I just wanted more of that. I wanted more opportunity to read that wonderful book. And so far, it's just been very uh, edifying and intriguing to uh, to read it more carefully. I've, I've, you know, I actually have notes on Ephesians that I wrote for a projected book. Uh, I don't know, sometime in the late '80s. So I have this, you know, copy of this thing laying around. So I've been working with Ephesians for a long time, but I, I've never tired of it. Is it uh, accurate to say that one of the, the uh perhaps unique features of that, that we could perhaps expect to see in your work on Ephesians is the research you've done in, in the background. Yeah, I, I will bring that in. Uh, Paul spent considerable time at Ephesus, and my dissertation was on Paul in Ephesus, the Ephesian society, and I will bring in insights from that work. I'm not going to tip you off into all the the snazzy stuff is coming off. That's it for this edition of Office Hours. We'll be back next month for another episode. You can listen to Office Hours online or subscribe and download it to your iPod or MP3 player. Go to wscal.edu and click on Westminster Audio. For more information about this uh, podcast or about Westminster Seminary, California, Please visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. Copyright 2009, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to our website is preferred.